interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Well, this has been quite a weekend. Uh, We have focused on the theme of Christ and culture, the good, the beautiful, and the true. And so it's our privilege uh, to hear this morning here Dr. William Edgar, who is from Westminster Theological Seminary. For those of you who are on the long side, I want to invite you to walk over to the short side after the service. There's a a book table back there that you are uh, invited to pick up some of Dr. Edgar's books as well as others that are there, but you have to pay for them. You can can pick them up, but uh, but, uh, lay down some cash, will you? And uh, the privilege that we've had is uh, to be encouraged and, and stretched to, to think that all of life really is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And today, uh, Dr. Edgar is going to come, uh, Bill's going to come and speak about you and your calling or God's love in your calling, and he's going to uh, present to us. Let's welcome him this morning. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for that warm welcome, and thank you for the extraordinary hospitality you have extended to Barbara and me during this wonderful weekend. We really feel we're part of the family, and that doesn't happen often when you come to speak just for a few days. And um, thanks for the nice weather. I I hear that in in the middle of winter um, here, we're escaping a considerable storm in Philadelphia, so I bet people don't often come up here to get away from... Get away from snow. Um, And we may end up staying longer than you really wanted. (laughs) Um, This is God's Word as it's found in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning at verse 7 and reading through verse 18. Gospel of John, chapter 10, 7 to 18. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. It's a bit of an overgeneralization, but it's nevertheless true to say that in the medieval church, the idea of calling was restricted to a certain special group of people who were priests or monks or nuns who had a vocation, as it was known, to serve God in a direct way. Now, other people, of course, could be Christians and certainly could be saved, but they were in more of a support role. And when the Reformation came along in the 16th century, Luther, in his very prophetic way, and Calvin, in his more consolidating way, and all of the other reformers broke through that false idea of calling. And reading the scripture, no doubt passages such as the one we've just read, they came to the conclusion that all believers are called. Every Christian has a vocation. And the reason is that there, is, there are not two kinds of Christian. One in so-called full-time Christian service and others in more or less support roles. There's only one kind of Christian. And a Christian is by definition in full-time Christian service. Of course, the full-time Christian service may be a church job, which is a wonderful, high, and noble calling, but it may be some other kind of calling. And even those who are called to the church, to work directly in the church, have other call kinds of calling, family, citizenship, so many other callings in this life. Now, the reason the reformers were so sure of this, and sadly, in parenthesis, it's something we're forgetting sometimes in our modern evangelical world is because of these words of Jesus. In this passage, here our Lord in controversy with his adversaries is declaring himself to be the good shepherd. It's actually a mixed metaphor because he talks not only of being a good shepherd but also of being the door that lets the sheep in and out. Now, let me say a couple of things about shepherding uh, in, uh, in the New Testament time or in the ancient Near East. First of all, for us to be called uh, sheep is not much of a compliment. Um, I don't know if you spent any time on a, on a sheep farm. Uh, I, I can't claim that I spent a lot of time on a sheep farm, but we visited sheep farms, and these are obstinate creatures. And... Um, you know, unlike the, uh, the romantic artwork that you see in, in some of the churches with a kind of effeminate Jesus carrying a little ewe lamb in his bosom, um, uh, the, the shepherd has to be a pretty tough person. Uh, we watched some uh, shepherds in New Zealand uh, catching the sheep and shaving them down and so forth. These are, these are tough guys. This is not um, sentimental kind of shepherding. 
And um, so the second thing, of course, to say, which is very important for this account here, um, is that ancient Near Eastern shepherding is unlike Western shepherding. Here, we would tend to have uh, to drive the sheep, and we'd have we'd use sheep dogs and and so forth. Um, in the ancient Near East, the shepherd used his voice a lot more, and and the, the sheep uh, learned to recognize that voice, and uh, they uh, they obeyed or not as they were uh, recognizing the, the voice, and uh, so Jesus calls himself uh, the the good shepherd. And um, he makes the critical point that um, his his sheep recognize his voice. Now, he goes on to say, this is not just voice recognition, the way you'd have in some of our modern devices, security devices and so forth. Or, um, you know how some people, when they call you, they you, you pick up the phone and it says, hi, it's me. And you're supposed to know who it is. Uh, and uh, I, it's always hard for me because, uh, you know, it, it, you don't want to hurt the person, uh, so you make up ways to kind of figure out who it is. Uh, of course, it, if it is somebody you, you know, you recognize the voice immediately. You know, if it's my daughter, my son, um, you know, they, they, say, they just have to say hi, and I know just, just who it is. Now, Jesus does that with us, uh, but it's far more than a response that we recognize his voice. Um, he knows us. And um, this good shepherd uh, that he is says in this bold and wonderful and warm claim, I know my own and my own know me. This is not some kind of elitism or privileged Gnosticism. Uh, This is the beginning of the sharing of his love for us. He goes beyond simply taking us and moving us from where we were to where we need to be. He knows us. Not only that, but as we'll see, he knows us at the deepest level. Now, biblical scholars will tell us rightly that knowledge in the Bible is not only intellectual or cognitive. It is, of course. It must be. There must be a content to knowledge. Um, It isn't right to say, you know, when I believe, I give up my rationality. Biblical faith is full of rationality. But it goes beyond mere rationality. Knowledge means intimacy. Um, It's used to describe the intimacy of a husband and wife. That deep level intimacy which makes them one flesh. Now, when God says he knows us, he's actually using this very strong, personal, committed, engaged self-sacrificing knowledge. He is saying, not just that I know who you are. Jesus is not just saying, you'll recognize my voice and we'll kind of make it through together. But God is saying, I know you because you're mine. It's an amazing thought that the God of the universe, the creator of this extraordinary world, whom many philosophers would say is, is the lofty one, the distant one, the omniscient, omnipresent one, the transcendent one, actually knows us intimately, more intimately than a husband knows his wife or than a wife knows her husband. Um, 
You know, in the book of Job, in the midst of his troubles, Job is searching out what has gone wrong. Why does God seem to abandon me? And um, in the midst of his struggles, as he's, as it were, almost bargaining with God, um, and he's saying, where is he? I look on the left and I can't find him, and I look on the right and I can't find him. Um, if I could only find him, I, I, I would, I think, think he's saying I'd tell him a thing or two. If I could only find him, he, I'd have an umpire, as the King James used to translate, and, and he would show that I haven't been uh, so deserving of, of his wrath. In the midst of it, he says, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Now, Job didn't know how right he was, because he would be admonished by God. But in the end, he'd be wonderfully justified by God. Indeed, unlike his false friends, God knew Job. God knows him. He knows the way he takes. And, you know, folks, that's all we need in life, really. We really don't need much more than to know that God knows. When you um, have to experience the sadness of um, being at the bedside of someone who's struggling or someone who's on their way uh, to, to the other world. Um, one of the most comforting things that you can share with that person is that, you know, whatever the reason for this, God knows. God knows you and he knows the way you take. And when you come out after this trial, you'll be gold. And the reason you'll be gold is because God has given himself to you. He has given himself sacrificially to you. Indeed, the image of the Lamb here is not simply an image um, that is meant to convey that uh, we are known by God as the sheep are known by the shepherd, but um, it's to remind us also that this good shepherd becomes the sacrificial Lamb. He is the Lamb that God has called to die and to be sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. So God's knowledge of us is secure. How can it be secure? How can God say to us, I know you and when, when you've come out, you'll be as good as gold. Even God with his great power, even God with his great love and forgiveness cannot just simply say, I'll forget about all of your sins. I'll just draw the curtain on who you really are and we'll start a new chapter because God is holy. And a holy God, however merciful, however loving, can't just park his holiness somewhere and leave it aside as he comes and loves us. No, God must find a way if he is to love us and have us come out as gold to atone, to deal with our sin. And so this good shepherd is not only a shepherd who calls us by name, a shepherd who knows us, but he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Quite literally, in a few weeks, Jesus would be going to Jerusalem and would be laying down his life for these sheep of his. Some who are in the Jewish sheep pen and many who are outside of the sheep pen, Jesus would lay down his life 
for all of them in this remarkable and, um, and horrendous sacrifice that led him to death. Now, God can then turn to his people and say, I forgive you because his son has died for them. And Jesus can say then, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus' love is so great that it would stop at nothing to seek and to save us. It would not even stop at the horrible death, the shameful death of the cross. Now this passage tells us an amazing secret. Reading the Gospel of John is like listening to a Mahler symphony. If you only hear the melodies, which are wonderful, you're missing some of the depth, some of the richness, some of the, the texture of the symphony. And of course, you can read the Gospel of John, as it were, for the melodies, for the dialogue, which is what uh, leads many people to use the Gospel of John in evangelistic Bible studies, and rightly so. And um, the storyline is good, too, because it moves uh, from his coming and his incarnation through to his death with these discussions that he has with his detractors and with his friends. But um, if we read it too fast, we miss a lot of the, the texture and the treasures. And uh, lest it slip us by, notice what he says here. Just after he talks about going and uh, finding other sheep outside of this sheep pen, in verse 17 he says these astonishing words. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, there's some puzzling aspects to this verse. How can he say, for this reason the Father loves me? If we have but a rudimentary understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity based on Scripture, we know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in a relationship of love from all eternity. Before the earth was made, there was love, glory, fellowship, communication between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And surely the love of the members of the Trinity is rooted in who they are. God is love. And so the Father cannot help but love the Son. The Son cannot help but love the Father. That's what they are in their being. How can Jesus say, for this reason, the Father loves me? Well, we enter into a very mysterious area here indeed. Jesus is not saying that he never loved him. Jesus is not saying that the focus of inter-Trinitarian love was only on his sacrifice. What he is saying is that the nature of that love is so great that when the Son willingly goes to be sacrificed, it earns him even more outpouring of the Father's love for him. It's not a subtraction of what was the case. It's an addition. It is the nature of God's love to, to grow, and even in the members of the Trinity, which we tend to think of as some static, non-moving thing, there is life, there is 
There is growing love. And so the Father's love can grow even more than it was in all eternity for His Son because of what the Son did at Calvary's cross. Now this love is not sort of the sentimental good feelings you might have in a modern love song. There's very little of that in the Bible. The love that is expressed here is a love of, of loyalty. This, whatever this means in eternity, before the world was made, the Son has a love of filiation, a love of loyalty, a love of devotion for His Father. And the Father has a paternal love, a fatherly love for His Son. There's something about this marvelous loyalty that is not um, a, a, a completely uh, uh, equal analogy. We believe from the data of Scripture that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, even though they are equally God. Mystery. Wonderful mystery. We'll spend most of eternity trying to fathom. But this Father has a fatherly love for the Son. And the reason for it is that His Son knows no limits in His devotion to the Father. You might have the idea, when you look at the story of Christianity superficially, that um, there was a kind of arrangement between the Father and the Son. And the Son said, you know, I don't really want to do this, but if you want me to, Father, you planning salvation the way you do, I guess I'll have to go. And that he kind of um, did the Father's will grudgingly. You even have the blasphemous idea in some wacky modern theologies uh, that uh, God the Father engaged in, in, in some sort of divine child abuse and sending His Son to something that really amounted to a, a cruel abandonment of His Son. This passage tells us the very opposite. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own authority. wasn't forced into this. I take it up again though it is a charge I receive from the Father. Here we have this marvelous mystery. The Son and the Father contract together in an eternal compact to save mankind by mutual agreement. And in that mutual agreement, there's a diversity. The Father plans and the Son executes. But the Father plans with love, and the Son executes willingly. John Murray puts it this way, We need to think much of the Father's love. Let us indeed think much of the Son's love. But we cannot afford to stop short of the Holy of Holies, the Father's love. Then we shall get to the fountain of the whole plan of salvation. Then we shall have the deeper appreciation of Christ's love. It is only as the ordeal of Gethsemane and Calvary is viewed in the perspective of damnation vicariously born, damnation executed with the sanctions of unrelenting justice, that we shall be able to apprehend the wonder and taste the sweetness of love that passeth knowledge, love to be eternally explored, but eternally inexhaustible. My friends, 
My brothers and sisters, your call, your salvation from now throughout eternity is rooted and grounded in this Trinitarian love. The love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father is the vouchsafe, is the guarantee, is the assurance of your salvation. Do you want assurance about your salvation? You can't go deeper than this. It's rooted in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father in all eternity. You, my friend, are saved. You are called, and nothing's going to take that calling away from you. If they did, they would be able to wrench apart the Father from the Son, which is a metaphysical as well as a biblical absurdity. God loves you so much that He has saved you with a love that is like the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. Your calling is rooted in nothing less marvelous and extraordinary than the love of the members of the Trinity. Now, you could not have a higher calling than this. And you have it for reasons we don't understand, but simply because God has set His love on you. And He has lots of love to give. He has more love to give. He has love to give to His Son for His loyalty. And He has love to give through His Son to you, His daughter, and to you, His Son. Knowing this and beginning in this place, then what should our lives look like? Three brief things. Knowing this, of course, we should be extravagant and generous in our love for our neighbor. That's our calling. Before we're called to be a scientist or an artist or even to be a citizen or a member of a family, we're called to love the neighbors that God gives us. Who is my neighbor? The man asked Jesus. The answer is, I, the Christian, am the neighbor to anyone in need. What neighbor are you to someone that God may have sent into your life recently? I challenge you tomorrow or the next day to go to someone that you needed to go to, haven't been thinking much about him or her, but you you, you ought to share the love of God with that neighbor. Think of somebody in your life. And maybe this week, Go after that person and, and, and show some neighborly love to him, whatever it might mean. Spending time, giving money, educating his children or her children, whatever it might mean. And, uh, of course, part of the greater neighborliness is world missions. Share the gospel. Make sure that your missionaries, the ones like we just prayed for, are provided for, so that we're of what Jesus wants us to do here as he goes to the sheep outside of the Jewish sheep pen. Second, watch out for false shepherds. This passage is a controversial passage. He's warning his disciples about thieves that come and have no interest in the, in the sheep. And surely he's rooting this in Ezekiel 34 and other places in the Old Testament where God warns the false shepherds not to go and steal sheep 
And he says, I myself will go and become the shepherd of the people. And I'll distinguish between the sheep myself. Watch out for the false shepherds of our time. There's so many of them. Some of them are so obvious that we don't have to worry about recognizing them. Some of them are subtle. One of my favorite um, subtle temptations to denounce is uh, the MasterCard ad. It's very clever. It's, it shows a wonderful scene between a grandfather and a granddaughter, or it shows people holding hands or somebody petting his dog. And it says some things in life are priceless. And then it says for everything else, there's MasterCard. Absolutely not. Everything in life is priceless because it's a gift of God. You can't put a price on anything in God's creation except as a matter of convenience. We in America are susceptible to the false shepherd of, I can buy this one. I can afford that. Everything else, I have to wait for some other means. Watch out for false shepherds. There are theological false shepherds. There are uh, consumerist false shepherds. There are so many in our society. Uh, but Jesus is saying, stay away from them and stay with the voice of the shepherd who's the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. He proved it by dying for us. Let's not listen to any other voices. And finally, stay in communion with this wonderful Trinitarian God. Let yourself be bathed in the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and never stop wondering at it. The great Russian Orthodox theologian George Florovsky once called the Gospel God's everlasting surprise. Friends, have we gotten to the place where we're so used to the Gospel, we're so used to coming to church, hearing the Word, that the surprise is gone, that it's kind of routine? Have we become professional or professionalist in our Christian walk? Don't let it happen. Go back to this passage and to many others and get down on your knees and ask God to invade your soul with the everlasting surprise of His love in the Gospel. And um, don't ever let yourself become jaded with the Christian life. Because God is there, the Good Shepherd, who leads you sometimes in the valleys of the shadow of death. But He does it because you need that. And because He wants you to share His suffering and to come closer and closer to identify with Him, who is the Good Shepherd, in order that it, by suffering you may then claim the power of the resurrection in your life. You're called. You're called in this sure, loving, Trinitarian salvation. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said to his disciples, so send I you. Friend, uh, as you've been called, you are anchored in the call of the Son by the Father. And now, just as the Father sent the Son, he sends you into the world into this hard, dark place, into this sometimes wonderful world where we can celebrate music together as we did last night, but into this often difficult place where we have sheep who are stubborn as our companions and where we have tough opposition from false shepherds.
But he sends us in the world, not abandoning us, but to go willingly as Jesus was willing and to go with the assurance that he'll never withdraw his love from us, that he'll never not know us, that he'll never breach the covenant that he has made with us, vouchsafed in the Good Shepherd. Friends, we have a a high calling. We have a wonderful gospel. Who would want anything else? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we we tremble at the extent of your love and your devotion and your sacrifice for us. We we wonder at such love, such wondrous love. And um, we struggle to believe it because we seem we are so far from it in so many ways. But Lord, draw us closer to yourself and show us what you have done for us so that we may, in our lives and our callings, give ourselves, sell out for our neighbor and for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand together as we sing uh, hymn number 665, O Master, Let Me Walk With Thee. Father, we leave here this morning with the assurance of your love. We have been able to see the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that drives home that reality. And we are grateful that we can live this week with that reality ever in our hearts and our minds. 
Thank you for calling us to know you, to be known by you, and to serve you. Enable us to do that in the strength of our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.